What a joy to be able to speak the words of the grace of the gospel of God to you. Remember that in these moments, you are not just passive listeners waiting for this to be done. You are active listeners trying to hear and understand and believe and obey. One sermon can change the course of your life and the life of all of those around you. A year's worth of sermons, oh man, can do beautiful work. So here's just one chance for us to be together around the Word of God. We're preaching together on what we're calling Seven Mile Road, a field guide, introducing you or reintroducing you to who we are and what we're about and what we do and why we are that way. We're specifically trying to anchor in the words of Acts 20. Rachel read some of those to you, where Paul is giving a speech that rewinds what it looked like for him to do gospel ministry in the life of a church plant. And we're saying, us too, can we look just like those words? So this is some theological vision and a lot of in the field practice. This is what we do and why. We're going with this big idea today. We are going to take sin and holiness seriously. We are going to take sin and holiness seriously. All right, five summers ago, I was shaving my head, and I noticed for the very first time there was a birthmark right here, uh, a mole. I had never seen that before, and I did not take it seriously. My only thought was, if I didn't go bald, no one would know that I had that ugly mole on my head. That was my only thought. I didn't ask about it. I didn't talk to anyone about it. I didn't do anything about it. What I didn't know is that it was melanoma, which is the worst kind of skin cancer that you can have if it gets into the roots, down through the roots of your skin, into your bloodstream. You can die from this. I let it be. I didn't take it seriously. I didn't know this could kill me. It could kill me. It was actually only when I went to my primary care physician, PCP, And he saw my red face. When my face is red, I'm not angry. I have rosacea. He saw my red face and he said, would you like to go see a dermatologist about that? So I shrugged my shoulders and said, yeah, sure. So I went to see a dermatologist. Immediately, he saw the red mole on my head. They took a sample of it. They called me back the next day, dead serious on the phone. And they said, Mr. Cruz, you have melanoma, and you need to come back in. We went and looked up melanoma on WebMD, and a fear descended over our home. It wasn't so much the fear of dying, but it was a fitting and proper fear of, this is no joke. This is a serious thing. This has to change. We've got to get about removing whatever this is from the top of my head. And we did it. I went to the surgeon in Stoneham. They strapped me down to the table and they grounded me. And then they cut a circle around the cancer and they cut under it. They removed it. They sent me home for the weekend with one, two stitches in my head. It was hurting. 
They checked it out on their microscopes. They saw that they had gotten around the margin of the cancer. They called me to come back in to get my head sewed back up. They uh, needed to cut some flaps in the circle so that they could pull it back together. This is a true story. They re-strapped me to the table, and they left me there. And whatever the Boston country music station was, that's what was on in the background. And they had some emergency in the other room, and I was in there for really 30 minutes. About the 27th minute, I'm on the table, and I said, I'm going to die, not from melanoma, from starvation, while listening to country music. This was not my plan. He came back in. He sewed me up. By God's grace, it's been solid. But from that day forward, the rest of my earthly life, I will pay careful attention to every mole on this aging body. That's what we do in my home now. We pay attention to anything that looks like it may be discolored or changing. Every six months, me and Dr. Kornbluth have our appointment, you know, medical chit-chat. I'm like, don't chit-chat. Just tell me if I'm okay or not. He looks me over. We are taking this thing seriously. Do you feel that? The gospel life, all of our gospel ministry together is about taking that same approach with fighting sin and pursuing holiness. We're going to be serious about this. What do you think my number one biggest fear is in serving you as a pastor? If you had to write down the list, what kind of things would you write down? Here's some that may come to mind for you. That I would be afraid that the church would fail. I've gotten over that fail, fear somewhat, but that's still a, a fear, especially after all these fruitful years. What if we don't actually make it? A fear that the church would just plateau and just kind of grow stale. A fear that we will run out of money a fear that some of our most important servants and people in the church will all kind of move at the same time. Scared of that. A fear that people would get sick of listening to me. That should just be like, Cruz, thank you for your years of service and we need some fresh blood. A fear that I would get in serious trouble for speaking gospel truth in an age where we call good, evil, and evil, good. A fear that there would be a Judas on our leadership team or in the membership of our church. There is a sense in which, yes, I am scared of all of those things and a lot more. But the number one biggest fear that I have, and it is not a petty fear or a vain fear or a selfish fear, is this. It's a holy fear that there would grow a disconnect between my personal, uh, my public persona over here, how I sound and how I look, and my private life over here, who I really am. A disconnect between what I say and how I said it, and who I am and how I live it. That's my biggest fear. To use Jesus' words, that the outside of the cup of my life would look great to people. Clean, 
successful, whatever, but the inside of the cup of my life would be nasty with lust unchecked, greed unchecked, anger unchecked, manipulation unchecked. I can run down the list. In other words, that my life and then my words would not line up. This is a pronounced fear for me for multiple reasons. The first one is I'm a wicked, bad, really fast sinner. You know what I mean by really fast sinner? Ray Ortland beautifully tweeted that a warning that we are all five minutes away from moral or ministry failure. And I read that and I said, yes, you're just exaggerating the timeline, Ray. It's more like two minutes with me, maybe 60 seconds. I rush through a lot of things in life. I move fast. It's a problem at times. And it's the same way that I am with sin. It would not take me very long to plunge down that road. But I'm a pretty good talker. See, those two things combined terrify me. By God's grace, it's just his providence. I have always been good with words reading them, understanding them, stringing them together. I've written a lot of poetry and a lot of rap, get stuff to rhyme. Speaking words, I'm good at this. This may be an urban legend, but according to my mother, my first words, my first word was not a word at all. It was a full sentence. I was however old when you start talking, the ball went underneath the lime green duster that my father used to drive. And I peered under the car and I said, the ball is underneath the car. She called Harvard, MIT, Stanford, <laughs> all of her friends. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. What I do know is that in kindergarten, it's true, I was the Papa Bear in the class play. And in sixth grade, I placed in the citywide public speaking contest. You have to memorize the whole thing and just let it fly. And I was like, let's do this, 12 years old. I gave the valedictory address at my high school. I gave the commencement speed address to 7,000 people at my undergraduate college. In the Graduate School of Management at BU, they always asked me to present the case study. Cruz, will you say it? I was a teacher. I have thousands of lessons hundreds of sermons, lots of talks in front of a lot of people under my belt. I say things well. This is a grace from God, but it is also a deceptive siren. It is possible to articulate heavenly doctrine while living like hell. It is possible to look like you have it all together, clean, while living like dirt. I have also seen with these eyes firsthand the devastation that comes to people like you and the disgrace that comes to the name of Christ and the death that comes to the, to the hypocritical sinner when we allow this to happen, especially in the life of a church or gospel ministry. The church that we grew up in, it is unbelievable how well the pastor could talk and what was behind the closet of his life. It would terrify you. The undergraduate school that I went to, 
the president of the college looked amazing until you got into what his home and the way he treated his leaders looked like. The city that I minister in was the epicenter of the black mass scandal with the priests and their sin and just looking the other way. The actual building that I minister from, the church that was here before us, closed because of a sexual sin between the pastor and a member of the church. Now, I'm not throwing rocks, believe me, at any of these men or women. What I'm saying is, in five minutes, you could end up adding my name to that kind of a list. And it won't begin with an affair, and it won't begin with a credit to the account and a debit to my account or vice versa. And it won't begin with me having a big fist fight with you out in the parking lot or on Green Street. It will start with me looking at my sin like it's no big deal. It will begin with not being really serious about sin or about the pursuit of holiness, being lackadaisical about the inside and not running hard after holiness. This is why the very first words of Paul's speech in Acts 20 have become beautiful and precious and crucial to me. And they have become foundational for what it means for us to live as Seven Mile Road and for us to lead together as Seven Mile Road. How does Paul come out of the gate in these words, summarizing his ministry? Here's what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you. You yourselves know how I lived among you. Would any American pastor ever begin a summary of his ministry with those words right there? Where would we start? You yourselves know how I taught among you. You listened to my sermons. They were put together. They were interesting. They were theologically accurate. You know how I taught. You know how I strategized among you. We went multi-site, video venue. We did missional communities. That was cutting edge. You know how I strategized among you. You know how I studied among you. I had the terminal degree. That's a big deal in church culture. Not just the bachelors, not just the MDiv, not just that extra year, the MATH. I went all the way to Westminster or St. Andrews, and I had the P and the H and the D. You know how hard I studied among you. You know how I looked among you. I mean, this is not my thing. Grace buys my clothes, and I just put it on. But some pastors will say, you know that we looked right. I stayed skinny to get into those skinny jeans at 9 a.m. on Sunday. Our stage was proper. You know how I succeeded among you. You watched me nail that capital campaign. You saw me grow that church, right? You saw the accolades that I had. 
This is not where Paul starts. He doesn't talk about his sermons, his successes, his degrees, his books. What does he say? What does he say? My life. You yourselves know about my life. Did he teach? Beautifully. We're going to see that over and over again in these words over the next few weeks. He taught. Did he strategize? Big time. It's so fun to read his, his thinking about how to be a missionary to different peoples in different cities. Did the man study and write theology? I mean, only the book of Romans, the most influential theological writing in earth's history. And yet, in the opening salvo of his speech, where does he come at you with? The holiness of his life. He says, you know the ground of my ministry was the fact that my private life and my public persona together, one and the same, no games. My life and my words went together. I was serious about holy living before you. Okay, let's think on this together because last week we talked about the grace of God as the bottom line, main thing, big idea of Seven Mile Road. We said, believing the gospel, breathing in grace like it's oxygen is our life together. The centrality of gospel grace like that breathed in every moment in every arena of this church's life does two things. Grace demolishes both legalism and license. It demolishes legalism and license. Okay, everybody gets the legalism part from last week's sermon, right? Legalism is thinking that we can be good enough to work our way to God. We're on a ladder, and we're going to climb high enough and fast enough to get there. Legalism is the American ninja warrior way of doing church. This is an analogy for my kids. They love watching that show. Here's what we say. If you can successfully maneuver all of the obstacles clean enough and fast enough, you did it. You win. You're acceptable to God. And if you fail the first time, you can just work harder and come back again and try next year and the next year and the next year until you make it. You've seen how this show works? You try the course, then they work harder and harder and harder. They come back year after year until they can hit that button. Grace demolishes that nonsense in the Christian life. Because the truth is that none of us could get past that first simple obstacle without breaking both of our legs and drowning in three feet of water. That's what grace reminds us of. So let's just stop with all the performance before God. Let's just be sinners together in need of the grace of God, marveling that Jesus nailed the course already. He did it. And now he invites us to be a part of his success. That's grace. Grace destroys legalism. But what a relentless focus on gospel grace doesn't do is swing us to license. Do you know what I mean by license? So if you get your license, you have permission 
to just do whatever it is that you got your license for, right? So if you get your license to drive, you are now free to drive all over these 50 states. Go for it. Go crazy. If you got your license to operate heavy machinery, go knock down a building, right? If you got your license to kill like 007, Nickelback has a license to torture my eardrums. Someone gave them permission to do that, so they just get after it all the time. When we say license, we mean you have the green light, just go. Sometimes people hear the gospel of grace and they think, hey, if we're covered by grace and it's all about grace and God's love for us is unconditional because it's about grace and Jesus is giving us his grace no matter what, then it doesn't technically matter whether we sin or not. It doesn't really matter that we grow in holiness. In other words, if legalism is American Ninja Warrior Church, license is Vegas Church. You know how Vegas works? Come out to Vegas. We give you permission to sin in any which way you can imagine as decadent as you want. Because all you're going to do is get back on the flight home. Nobody's going to know. Nothing's going to change. It's no big deal. You're free to indulge your passions. That's why Vegas exists. People make that theological argument. If grace abounds where sin abounds, then let's just abound in sin. Why we got to deal with pursuing holiness together? Because grace. What does Paul say in the book of Romans when his punk imaginary interrogator says that to him? Well, then I can just sin because grace abounds. He says, God forbid. In other words, grace does not free us up to continue in sin. It propels us toward holiness. Once you begin to breathe in the life-infusing, sin-forgiving, heaven-securing, conscience-clearing, soul-justifying air of grace, you are not going back to a life of sin. To do so would be to make a joke of God and to cheapen grace. And so we say it like this, a right experience of grace awakens us to the seriousness of sin and burns in us a holy fear of God that propels us toward holy living. That's how we talk about this. This is the clear teaching of Scripture from beginning to end. Nowhere clearer than this verse that I want you to see. Paul has just dropped a bunch of gospel bombs on people. Grace, grace, grace. He's talked about our adoption to become the sons of God through no work of our own. And he says this, since we have these promises, in other words, since we have the gospel of grace, what do you think is coming next? Go crazy, do what you want. You can sin, no big deal. Look at what he says. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Does everyone feel this? 
What is the trajectory of being a grace-centered, gospel-believing church? It moves us in the direction of holiness. Gospel grace is not an open door to continue sinning. It is rocket fuel toward holy living. In God's grace, our souls have a desperate love for him and a holy fear of him. And in those things comes joy. If you separate these two things, grace from holiness, you've lost the direction of the gospel. A right experience of grace awakens us to the seriousness of sin and burns in us a holy fear of God that propels us toward holy living. Okay, If there was ever a church that believed this and lived it out, it's the people to whom these words that we're studying today were written. Paul arrived in their city and preached the gospel of grace and a church blew up. But then something very intense happened that moved them together toward holiness. There was some syncretistic, magical uh, exorcists in this city of Ephesus. And when they saw the power of the gospel in Paul's life, they said, hey, we can keep living in greed and pretense and sin, but if we just throw the name of Jesus into our incantations, we're going to have some serious power. And so they began to use the name of Jesus out of their mouth in an attempt to advance their personal fame and fortune and causes. You feel that? Jesus in my mouth, but no holiness, no devotion in my life. Seven of them tried to exercise one demon. In this story, the one guy beats on the seven of them nearly to death, strips them of their clothes, and sends them running out into the streets. Now, when we first read the story, we chuckle because that is kind of funny. But that's not what happened in the life of this church. They had a holy fear visit the church. Luke says it like this, fear fell upon them all. Here's what happened. They realized the seriousness of pretense and hypocrisy and sin in this moment. Men and women began to confess, hey, I'm no different than those seven guys. I've been talking about Jesus and going to Paul's church, but I still have my magic books at home. I've been singing songs on Sunday and saying that I'm a grace person, but I still lean into my pagan incantations when I need them. I believe the gospel, but I'm not pursuing a holy life. There's a disconnect here. And when they see what has happened before their eyes, they say, that needs to stop. And they get serious about sin and holiness. And Luke tells us that many of them who were now believers, they were believing the gospel, they now begin to confess and divulge their practices. A number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books and burned them in the sight of all. I love this, and I want to go to this church. It is not 
an option for us to have a disconnect between what we believe and say and how we live. I'm going all in on holiness. And they do it. This was cutting ties with their old life completely. This was hundreds of thousands of dollars of resources and books that were given up so that they might be holy. That urgency that's a part of this text needs to become an urgency in your life and in my life. Thankfully, the Spirit makes this explicitly clear in Acts 20 for us. We've already seen that Paul starts with his life when he recounts why his ministry was so faithful and fruitful. And where does he begin when he looks at you, when he looks at his listeners? Where does he start with them? Here's what he says, his first exhortation in his speech, the bottom line of church life together as we're believing the gospel. He says this, first thing, pay careful attention to yourselves. Pay careful attention to yourselves. This is not where we would start in our day. I want to look at you and say, pay careful attention to how you're serving the church. Pay careful attention to how much money you're giving. Pay careful attention to greeting new people warmly. Pay careful attention to the programs that we have. Pay careful attention to the changing demographics in our city. Pay careful. I have a long list of things. Where does Paul, inspired by the Spirit, begin in love for these people because he wants the church to be holy? What does he say? Pay careful attention to yourself. Personal holiness is the beginning of all fruitful gospel ministry. Your life and doctrine is how he says it to Timothy. Before you think about the flock, the sermon, the strategy, pay careful attention to your life. This is that word for beware, like watch out, be vigilant, keep guard on your life. Seven Mile Road is built to heed these words from the Spirit. Here's how we say it together. Unwavering commitment to holy living without legalism and without pretense. In other words, we're not playing. We're taking sin seriously. We love God. We fear God. We know that sin is a deceitful killer. And we're going to pay attention to our souls. That's why this place feels really intense sometimes. This is why we use the word soul care. What's that? Care, care, paying careful attention to the state of your soul. All of the sin in your life springs when your heart fades from the love of God and the fear of God. So what do we do together? How's your soul? Where is your heart in this? Can I tell you what's going on with me? and where my heart is because it's not in a good place and I need help. Those are not foreign conversations in the life of our church. Next week, I'll preach all about what it means to walk in the light together. That's why we do soul care. 
This is why we do church discipline. It's an awful thing, but it's a necessary thing. We mentioned at our member forum the other night that we were not having to excommunicate anyone. And Jess was over here and she went, whoo. And we didn't know if she was going, whoo, like I'm happy or whoo, I made it. What church makes sure at their member forums that they're dealing with something like moving someone out of the life of the community because they refuse to repent of sin. It's a church with an unwavering commitment to holy living without legalism, but without pretense. This is why we fence the table on Sunday mornings. Have you noticed that before you come down here, the pastor will say something to you like, if you've believed Jesus, if you've been baptized in front of the world into the family of God, sometimes I say it like this, if you are following Jesus with all that you've got. What do we mean by those words? That's not legalism. That, we're not passing judgment on anyone. We're saying this is dead serious. Jesus Christ was betrayed and falsely tried and crucified to atone for our sin. We don't just stroll down to the elements if we are lackadaisically hanging on to sin in our lives. So we warn you and we fence the table because we love you and we fear God. Because of these two things together, we want this place to be holy. Now the good news for you is that your deepest joy intersects with your fiercest obedience. The greatest joy in your life is held out for you as the gospel of the grace of God pushes you toward holiness. We say it like this, once you've breathed in the grace of God in the gospel, you want to be a part of a church that is dead serious about paying careful attention to our lives so that we might walk in the joy of holiness. Let me finish here. Once I pushed past six feet tall in eighth grade, guess what every sport everyone told me I needed to start getting into? Okay, right, basketball. All the coaches were like, hey, you're six feet and 37 pounds. Why don't you try out basketball? So my freshman year, I tried out for the team and I was determined to make that team. The head coach of St. Dominic Savio High School was literally an ex-Marine drill sergeant. I don't mean that as a metaphor. I mean, for real, that's what he did before he became a basketball coach. So the tryout started at 7 a.m. on the Friday after Thanksgiving. That was the earliest that the MIAA would allow you to start basketball season. And it wasn't just one tryout. It was two, two tryouts a day, two a days, 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. They would know because they had to drop me off. And then 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., and try not to die in the middle. That was basically the schedule for the tryouts. Uh, the extension to the gymnasium was built with three stories. So the cafeteria, first floor, and second floor. I don't remember seeing a basketball on the first two days of the tryouts. Like I'm thinking I'm going to have to cross over and show that I have a left hand. There was no basketballs involved. This was just basically boot camp to see if you could endure the physical rigors of being in this program. He took us to the bottom floor of the steps, and he pointed up, and he said, up and down the stairs 20 times on the whistle. 
go. Now, you know those old Catholic high school gymnasiums in the wintertime? The heat is on, but there's no thermostat, so it's either on or it's off. You know what I'm talking about? It's either 17 degrees or 187 degrees. Running up and down these stairs once, twice, three times, 175 degrees. I got all of my Thanksgiving dinner still banging around in there. A lot of it ended up on the side of the stairs somewhere. So now there's teenage vomit, cranberry sauce, and turkey, and it's 115 degrees. You haven't breathed. You're on your 17th, 18th lap, but you just want to make this team. Can you feel the air in that hallway right now? I remember finishing the 20th lap, went up to the first floor, kicked the doors open, headed toward Bennington Street. I mean, the nasty urban air of East Boston never felt so sweet and clean in my life. And I breathed and I breathed and I breathed. What is the one thing I did not want to do right then? Go back into the stench of that hallway. If you loved me, what is the one thing you would have worked with me to not have to somehow do right there? To leave that fresh air and walk back into the stench of that hallway. You guys, this is what this pursuit is all about. We have breathed in the clean air of the grace of God in the gospel. That old sin was like my melanoma. It was a killer, and Jesus has walked us away from it. We love God too much. We fear God too much. We love each other too much to not get serious about staying out in the clean air of the grace of God. And so we're going to be serious about sin and about holiness together. I long for you to come there with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. These words are like rocket fuel for our souls. You know how I lived among you. Thank you for those words, Holy Spirit. Pay careful attention to yourself. Thank you for those words, Holy Spirit. I pray that we would be the worst sinners who are becoming the holiest saints because your glory and our joy is met in that place. Help us to not waver on that. Give us a desire for it. Teach us how to love each other toward it. Hear my prayer. Amen.